Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. When President Trump came to office in 2017, he inherited from President Obama the Iran nuclear deal, which is known formally as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. This agreement promised sanctions relief in return for Iran taking certain verifiable steps to limit its nuclear program. Of course, as you know, President Trump left this diplomatic agreement. The administration then embarked on a campaign of so-called maximum pressure against Iran, presumably in an effort to secure what Trump would consider to be a better deal. This campaign included the re-imposition of U.S. sanctions and an effort to deter allies in Europe and elsewhere from doing business with Iran. And in January this year, the United States assassinated a top Iranian military figure, Qasem Soleimani. And despite the fact that he has been voted out of office, as I am recording this on Wednesday, November 18th, Trump's Treasury Department announced yet more sanctions against Iranian-linked entities. Needless to say, the Iranians have not been swayed by this maximum pressure campaign, and indeed, they have taken certain steps in breach of the JCPOA. Such is the state of relations between the United States and Iran that Joe Biden will inherit when he takes office in January. So, to help me understand whether or not it is even possible for a Biden administration to revive the JCPOA, and what steps a Biden administration can take to get diplomacy with Iran back on track, is Trita Parsi, Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute. We kick off discussing the Trump administration's relationship to Iran before discussing how a Biden administration may more productively approach diplomacy with Iran. And before we start, I just want to thank people for reaching out to me with suggestions of topics I should cover as we enter this kind of interesting interregnum period ahead of a new Biden administration that may take some very different approaches to foreign policy than the current administration. So keep those suggestions coming. You can reach out to me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I'll read all of your notes. I'll respond to all your notes. It may take me some time, but I will get back to you. Uh, and I Look forward to hearing from you. All right, now here is my conversation with Trita Parsi of the Quincy Institute. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
Yeah, so when Trump became president, he came into the White House with this almost obsession of trying to undo everything that was part of Obama's legacy. And on the foreign policy front, of course, the JCPA was probably his biggest win. Uh, but Trump did not come in with a particularly strong view or even much knowledge about U.S.-Iran relations or Iran per se. He just disliked the JCPA because of Obama, not because of you know the usual traditional Washington perspective on Iran, in which it's seen as a very destabilizing element in the Middle East and America's biggest uh, challenger and enemy in the region. Uh, he didn't have much of that. He was just focused on the JCPOA. But the people he surrounded himself with, who shared his uh, opposition to the JCPOA, they came from it from the perspective of, uh, you know, seeing Iran as a threat, uh, being very sympathetic to the Saudi view of the region, to the Emirati and the Israeli view of the region, but not necessarily with some form of anti-Obama obsession. But it just so happens to be that if you were really strongly against the JCPOA, you would also likely be quite favorable towards using military force against Iran and being willing to go to war. So despite all of his talk about ending endless war and you know criticizing all of these foreign adventures, the people he surrounded himself with on Iran in particular were the very same people that got us into those wars and who were also trying to get us into another we, war. We, you can name war. names. Uh, we're t- uh, specifically, yeah. John Bolton became national security advisor course, Bolton, right before also- uh, the uh, Trump administration made major moves against the JCPOA. Indeed. And in fact, John Bolton, of course, is probably the biggest hawks, but so is Mike Pompeo. Mm-hmm. And the original people that he got in, you know, these so-called adults in the room, they were not playing ball with him when it came to Iran. They were pushing back against pulling out of the agreement. That's why it took him a year and a half before he managed to get out of the agreement. And once he fired them, he went with John Bolton, even though he said that he didn't like John Bolton that much. But John Bolton was really, really hawkish on Iran and against the JCPOA, and he got him in there. And the biggest regret John Bolton has had with his uh, term serving uh, uh, Donald Trump is that he didn't manage to go uh, and start a war with Iran. When Trump decided not to attack Iran after the Iranians had shot down an American drone that the Iranians say went into Iranian territory, um, Bolton said that that was the most devastating moment in his uh, uh, term in the White House. And we should and say, when, well, this isn't hyperbole. Like John Bolton has a very long record of wanting the United States to bomb or, Iran. Uh, and and you know, he did not get his chance at that uh, whilst- He did not he, get his chance. I mean, this is the man who literally wrote the op-ed in the New York Times. The headline was, to stop an Iranian bomb, bomb Iran. Moreover, so, mm-hmm. when- yeah, Sorry, um, go ahead, go ahead, yeah. And when- uh, Trump was kind of close uh, of trying to get some sort of opening with Iran. The French were mediating and they were trying to make sure that something could be done to get diplomacy back on track. And the Iranian foreign minister was going to be in this French city during the G7 meeting. Trump was really trying hard to make sure that he would get a meeting with the Iranians. Bolton prepared a one-line resignation letter, prepared a plane to fly back to Washington from France in case that meeting went ahead. Mm-hmm. So, so deep was his animosity towards Iran that he was just going to resign flat out if 
Trump moved in this direction and actually had diplomacy with Iranians. And, and, you know, Bolton, though, while he was still the national security advisor and subsequently Mike Pompeo, have championed uh, other efforts to discredit and undermine the JCPOA, including the use of sanctions against American allies who continue to do business with Iran under the JCPOA. I just had the former French uh, ambassador to the US, Gerard Rowe, on, on my podcast the other week, who was sort of decrying these sanctions against Total and Peugeot that were being leveled against uh, those companies, those French companies by the U.S. government. Um, what are the current, what's like the current status of, of that effort? Well, the, the sanctions that were imposed that um, Ambassador Ho is referring to were actually the ones that were imposed during the lead up to the JCPA under Obama. Later on, though, Trump, by walking out of the deal, reimposed all those sanctions. And then he went on and went way beyond those sanctions. And at this point, I mean, there's hardly anything left to sanction. Um, and those sanctions are targeting all foreign companies. And I mean, you know, have pharmaceuticals and, and companies dealing with medical equipment that in the middle of a pandemic, no longer can sell equipment, even simple equipment to the Iranians because of the sanctions that Trump has imposed. And so, this is what they called maximum pressure. And the entire belief, at least in Trump's mind, was that if the Iranians suffer enough, they will come crawling to the negotiating table and beg for mercy. And on the contrary, that is not at all what happened. What instead happened was that the United States and Iran, on at least two occasions, were only minutes away from war. And anyone who had dealt with Iran before and who had dealt with the JCPA before warned Trump that this is exactly what would happen if we went down the path of maximum pressure. And we are quite lucky, frankly, that this did not lead to war. Since the United States pulled out of the JCPOA, reimposed these sanctions, engaged on that maximum pressure campaign, uh, the Iranians have also taken steps to um, undermine their their own commitment to the JCPOA, you know, uh, enriching uranium beyond the approved thresholds and beyond the approved uh, amounts. Um, and you have this new Biden administration coming to power presumably seeking to rescue or somehow re-enter the JCPOA. From the perspective of the Iranians, how can they even trust the U.S. government at this point um, to abide by commitments that they made you know, in 2015? How, from their perspective going forward, what do they need to see or hear from uh, Joe Biden to want to re-engage with the United States? So you're putting your finger on something extremely important, the lack of confidence and trust that, first of all, you know, the Iranians never really trusted the U.S. in the first place, nor did the U.S. trust Iran, of course. So we're talking about a starting point in which there was very, very little trust to go around in the first place. Then you have Trump do this and betraying an agreement that an entire world had supported with the exception of a very few number of countries. The Security Council passed this deal with 15 to zero votes. Um, so to have that happen has really reinforced this very dark narrative in Iran that views the United States as inherently opposed to Iran and incapable of living up to any arrangement with Iran. And even if there might be some optimism and some confidence that perhaps Biden actually will turn this around and he will try to do the right thing and he will try to honor America's signature on this agreement. 
the question mark will still linger in the heads of the Iranians, which is, well, what happens afterwards? What are the value of these agreements if they can, with the uh, uh, election of a new president, which will be determined by three counties in Pennsylvania, you know, everything just turns around and you simply cannot rely on the United States having any consistency in its foreign policy. Um, and I think that the closeness of this past election, I mean, if there had been a complete blowout and, and Biden had completely defeated Trump uh, in the South and elsewhere as well, I think there would be a different perspective on the idea that, you know, what the U.S., you know, Trump was some sort of a fluke and aberration and, and things are going to go back to normal. But this was an election in which Trump actually got even more votes than he did last time, even though, of course, he lost. So the confidence in the world, uh, in Iran and elsewhere, is going to be very weak. And I was just spending some time with European officials this past week. They're very worried about the commitment of the United States to a bunch of other agreements. Um, and they are allies of the United States. They are countries that respect and, and, and tend to admire the United States. They're not Tehran and the, the clergymen over there who seem to, to tend to have an extremely dark view of the United States. So that tells you something of how difficult it is and what, frankly, Biden needs to do in order to be able to uh, restore some of that confidence, not just for the sake of the JCPOA, but for the sake of the much, much larger amount of other commitments and agreements that the United States has signed that now are increasingly going to come under question. What can Biden do then to restore this confidence? I mean, it is clear that another Republican president, uh, should he or she be elected in four years, would withdraw from the agreement uh, again. I mean, you know, the political forces are aligned in the United States very much against the JCPOA. What can Biden do to try on, to on either... The right yeah. Yeah. On the right, yeah. yeah. Um, on the In the Democratic Party, I mean, it's now part of the party platform mm -hmm. to resurrect the JCPOA. Let me, let me give you a couple of suggestions on what I think uh, Biden should do. Uh, first of all, I think it's very critical that he very early on uh, signals a very clear intent that he... In wants to go back into the deal. And of course, the Iranians would have to live up to all of their uh, obligations under the deal as well. I think it's critical to do it quickly because the Iranians are going to have their elections in June of next year. And it's going to be very problematic if this issue has not been, not fully resolved, but if there hasn't been a, a realignment by both countries to the JCPOA by then. But after that, I think it's important actually to really create a much more robust dialogue between the United States and Iran and institutionalize it. If it can be even a normalization of relations, that would be good. I've, that's probably too unrealistic in the short term, but just something that makes sure that even if a future president comes in and wants to move away from the JCPOA, that there at least are those channels of communications that are standardized, that are institutionalized, that will ensure that that president nevertheless also gets uh, the perspective of the Iranians and takes that into account. What happened in this past case with Trump is that the Iranians refused to talk to him because of all of the things that he had said about what he wanted to do with the JCPOA. That was probably, in retrospect, a big mistake on their end because it led to a scenario in which the only education Trump got about the Middle East and about Iran came from rivals of Iran in the region, such as uh, uh, MBS in Saudi Arabia or MBZ in the UAE, for instance. And that tended to completely color Trump's view of the entire region and in, of Iran in particular. And that only intensified um, the process of moving towards 
uh, maximum pressure and all of these measures that have now become so problematic for Iran and for the United States. There needs to be something that helps insulate this agreement so that future presidents, even if they want to, at least they will not have as easy of a time of walking back and betraying America's signature. But I mean, like, but but concretely, what can those be? I well, mean, we're we're just like um, I, I should say, you know, we're you know less than a year from the January 2020 targeted assassination of Qasem Soleimani. You know, like yeah. it, it, from Iran's perspective, like, what do you need to see from Biden, and what politically would Biden be willing to to accept? So the Iranians are probably going to want all kinds of uh, economic measures to make up for all of the losses that they've made in these last three years. Uh, But I think, frankly, what is more important is the type of configuration that will happen on the American end in order to undo exactly what you just mentioned earlier on, Mark, which is that the politics of this issue on the right is clearly geared against the JCPOA. One of the flaws of the JCPOA, in my view, was that it never touched the primary sanctions, meaning the sanctions that are Um, preventing American companies from doing business with Iran. As a result, a very important constituency and a very powerful constituency had no interest in either the survival or the death of the JCPOA, and that is the American business community. They were not allowed to go back into Iran as a result of the JCPOA because only the secondary sanctions were lifted, which meant that only European and Asian countries would be able to go into the Iranian market. If they had been allowed to go in, if the JCPOA had lifted primary sanctions, then there would have been a business con- uh, uh, constituency in the United States that would have objected and pushed back against any rash decisions in terms of moving away from the JCPOA or reducing America's commitments to it. That did not exist. So I think a lot of the focus has to be on trying to create a configuration on this side that ensures that the politics of this uh, is much more uh, responsible. Uh, than what we've seen so far. We have allowed a very critical strategic uh, agreement that clearly serves U.S. national interests to become a pawn in a political game. And that is really irresponsible. So, so lastly, in the first 100 days of the Biden administration, what would you advise he do to advance that uh, agenda and, and that idea that you just laid out? First, I think there needs to be some clear signals from Biden that he intends to go back, uh, that, he, uh, that he wants the Iranians to do full compliance as well. I would move very fast after inauguration to make sure that that happens. I would also signal quite clearly that the United States is interested in moving the region towards taking far more responsibility for their own security and, and having a regional security dialogue that would include the Iranians, the Saudis, and others. And by that, making sure that once we have a realignment with the JCPA by both sides, there can be new dialogue, new diplomacy on a bunch of other issues that will build on the JCPOA, but will not jeopardize the JCPOA or not replace the JCPOA. Meaning that if those other negotiations, unfortunately, do not succeed, they will not then cause the JCPOA to fall apart. But something that clearly signals the JCPOA cannot be the end of this. It has to be the beginning of this. That, I think, is critical for Biden's first 100 years. He's not going to be able to achieve it, but he can signal clearly and take the first steps towards moving in that direction. Uh, Well, Trita, thank you so much for your time. And and your article is great in Foreign Affairs. I'll point listeners to it. Excellent. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Trita. That was very helpful. And yeah, I'm excited for the kinds of episodes I have in store for you in the weeks and days and, and months ahead. So stay tuned. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Oh, uh, actually, before I let you go, one quick request. If you are a regular listener to the show, I'd appreciate it if you just take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. It is just a very useful way to promote the show to other people with similar interests in international affairs. Basically, you know, the algorithms that recommend podcasts show favor on podcasts that have more reviews. So appreciate it ahead of time. Thank you. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.